church family as we're here together. I just pray for Phil that you'll just be with him as uh, he shares your word here this morning, Lord. Amen. I wonder if you've ever been in a situation of emergency. What did you choose to do? I remember one time I was driving in a 100k zone and I went around the corner and there was a line of cars that were stopped in the middle of the road because the front one was turning right. And so come flying around this corner at about 80 or 90 k's and suddenly there's these cars that are stopped right there. So I had to try and choose what to do. Um, am I going to brake? Am I going to try and go to the, onto the verge? Or should I drive on the wrong side of the road? Or how do I avoid being uh, crashing into these cars? And I, I did avoid the crash, which is awesome, by God's grace. And, but in these situations of, of emergency, we always have this, this urge, this need to decide, what can we do? What are we supposed to do? And you can bring the slides up now, please. Um, we're going to start off by looking at some attacks on uh, the foundations of our Christian society today. And when I say Christian society, I don't mean New Zealand as a whole, but um, just the, the church. And I know that Jesus Christ is the foundation of the church, and he is beyond attack. Uh, nobody could ever over, overcome him. However, the church is under attack today. In, in so many ways. So we're going to have a very brief look at these, and then we'll have a look at Psalm 11, which is going to help us deal with them. If this goes. Excellent. So the first way I believe that the church is under attack is in what some writers have termed the theology of the spheres. Our society wants, our, wants us to believe that our faith is only a private matter, not a public matter. When you go to work, they say, just do your job and go home. We don't want to know about your, your private beliefs. And so they're trying to exclude God out of the public area. And uh, this was something that um, Hitler did in Germany when he was coming to power. He said to the churches, you know, God, he's only God of spiritual things, not of political things. So what you need to do is just make sure that you preach the gospel about Jesus saving people's hearts and the political party that I rule, we will take care of everything else. <laughs> and what happened? The, the spiritual sphere which God was um, in charge of shrank and shrank and shrank in the view of the church until it was only this big. And in the end, the church in Germany was dispersed and divided and persecuted. And it started with this theology of the spheres. This is the church's area, this is God's area, and everything else is not. And this, that's absolutely contrary to the Bible, but it's something that it's very easy to buy into, and it's something that's affecting the church today. The next attack on the um, church today would be postmodern thinking. Oops. Could we go back one slide, please? Thanks. The, we're, we're familiar with the term relative truth. And we know that society says your truth is true for me and my truth is um, true for me and that kind of thing. But the church today, in some senses, is buying into that thinking too. I've been to a number of Bible studies over the years at, at different churches, and um, I can't remember how many times we all sat down and went around the circle saying, 
what do you think of this verse? What do you think? What do you think? What do you think? And at the end you say, that's nice, let's pray and go home. (laughs) And at the end of the day, we have a pool of what everybody thinks without looking at what God is trying to say in the Bible to everyone. And there's there's another way that postmodern thinking is encroaching on the church today, and that is a focus on ourselves. When we read our Bibles, I'm just looking for God's message for me today, not not anyone else, just God's word for, for me, my little message. It's another attack on the church today. There's a, consu- a consumer mentality in the church today. I believe um, some people come to church thinking that God is for me in the same way that a car is for me. Whatever I decide to do, he's with me. <laughs> he's for my use, my satisfaction. He goes where I want. He does what I want to do. I'm thinking of doing this, and I think that God approves as well. And the thought that God is just like me. He thinks he doesn't, he doesn't like the same people I don't like, and he loves the same things I like. It's just consuming things as if God is a product, a challenge to the church today. The um, stratification of the church. We're talking about um, strata, like layers in a cake. And there are some churches today where the young people don't talk to the old people. And the young people are all segregated away in their own little group and are not really considered as part of the church, where the young have disrespect for the old and the old have disdain for the young, and neither seem to value the other very much. It's hard to say that a church is unified in the truth if, they don't talk, if the different groups are not talking to one another. A challenge to the church today. We know that division is the beginning of dispersion. Division is not healthy for any church. So with all this, we're left wondering, well, what can the righteous do? What can we do? Oh, one, one more attack on the church today. Attacks on the truth of the Bible. We read it in our newspapers. We see it on TV. We read about it in the internet. Um, there's um, famous atheists who are pushing their point of view, like Richard Dawkins or Sam Harris. And you know what's very sad and interesting to me is that it seems that the church has played, must have played some part in paving the way for this atheism. Because the countries in which atheism is the strongest are the countries which used to have a very strong church culture. And, um, of course, there's a lot more that could be said about these things, but I'm just saying there are challenges in, on churches today. And ex-churchgoers make excellent atheists. Did you know that Richard Dawkins was brought up in the church? Richard Dawkins is probably the most anti-God person I can think of at the moment. And yet he grew up in the church and he left God at about 16 or 18, something like that. What went wrong? What part did the church play in that? A challenge to the church today. So we're left saying, what can we do? These things are serious challenges and we, you know, what can we do? (laughs) Should we panic? Do we fight? Do we hide and say, we're just going to stay here and nobody can come in or out and we're not going to talk about anything that's out there. We'll stay here and, and follow our traditions and, and, and just carry on doing what we've been doing. Or would we say, let's bend over completely backwards 
and say, we don't have any problem with what's out there. It's all fine. I find support for it everywhere. And um, we should be nice people like Jesus anyway and not, not worry about these things. Or we could be consumerist and say, well, I don't think those things matter at all. As long as my needs are being met in church, it's fine. I just come to church to have my needs met. Hopefully the preacher does a good job of meeting my needs to, needs this time. Well, this kind of um, challenge to the people of God is not new. And definitely in, um, this, in the Psalms, it talks about this. And Psalm 11 is one Psalm that talks about challenges to the foundations of the righteous community. And one, one person who was advising the psalm writer said this, Flee like a bird to your mountain. Behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted the arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous person do? This person is looking at all these challenges to the righteous in their society's time. And it's highly likely it was a violent challenge because later on in the psalm it specifies the violent people as the ones whom God will judge. And so this person is saying, oh no, what can the righteous do? And what he's really saying is, go to the temple mountain. And in verse 4, we read about the temple. So when we read about mountains and when the word temple is near, usually it means the, temp the mountain that the temple was on in Jerusalem. Run to the temple mount for protection. Um, it could also, also be taken as a generic kind of mountain stronghold, but that's less likely. But this, this advisor, this person is, is so concerned. He says, the wicked are in the dark. We can't shoot at them, and they're shooting at us. They're in the dark. They're wicked. They're evil. And they're willing. We can't really do anything. Let's run and hope God protects us in, in, on a mountain, on the temple mountain probably. The psalmist replies this. The psalmist says, I seek refuge in the Lord. I seek refuge in the Lord. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. How can you say that to me? And he goes on, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes are seeing, his eyelids examine the sons of man. The Lord examines the righteous and the wicked, and his soul hates the one who loves violence. He will rain coals on the wicked, fire and brimstone and raging wind will be the portion of their cup. Because the, the righteous Lord loves righteousness, the upright will behold his face. So basically, Psalm 11 has two parts to it. There's the question of the advisor. When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous person do? And the answer, take refuge in the Lord because he is with us as king over all. He is with us as king over all. And this, um, the mention of the throne here in um, Psalm 11 
is really important because this, there's a group of Psalms here which are talking about ruling, about thrones. And indeed, um, kingship is a theme throughout the whole, through all the Psalms. But just very quickly, um, in, in Psalm 8, sorry, can we go back some slides? Thanks. In, in Psalm 8, it talks about um, people, human beings, having dominion over God's works in Psalm 8, verse 6. And it has a very positive view of people ruling under God. And indeed, that was God's intention from the very beginning. In Genesis chapter 1, God says to Adam, I want you to rule over the birds of the sea and the fish of the air. I want you to have dominion over all this creation. And so Psalm 8 is kind of referring to that. Um, you've, you've given mankind dominion over the works of your hands. But after that, all the Psalms talk about the wicked people who are oppressing others. Wicked people are oppressing others, but the Lord is the perfect king. And it comes um, to complete circle almost in Psalm 14, where it says, there is no one who does good. The Psalm 8 talks about how people are to, to do good and rule the world under God. And Psalm 14 says, there is no one who does good. What is left but the kingship of the Lord who is perfect. So the psalmist says, I take refuge in the Lord, the king. And, and by implication, this, the psalmist is saying, we should take refuge in the Lord, not the mountain. Why should we flee to a mountain stronghold when the Lord is our refuge? And I wanted to point out that the Lord is our refuge in the storm. Now, I know uh, today, a lot of um, times when we think about being close to God, having a quiet time, we want to be somewhere quiet. We want to be somewhere alone, somewhere where nothing will bother us, somewhere where everything is peaceful. But the Psalms talk about God being a refuge in the storm. The Psalms talk about God being a refuge in the middle of conflict. And indeed, um, this, this, in this time, the foundations are being destroyed. What can the righteous do? The Lord, I take refuge in the Lord. We don't have to go to a quiet place to take refuge in the Lord. We need to, to be able to take refuge in the Lord everywhere, at work, when we're stressed, when we're in trouble, when we feel like everything is going wrong when the foundations are being attacked and destroyed. And the psalmist is talking about the community of the righteous taking refuge in the Lord. It's the upright who will see God's face. It's the righteous who take refuge in the Lord. If you want refuge in God today, you need to live his way. People who are disobedient to God come under his discipline if you want refuge in God today, you must live his way. And I, I like Derek Kidner's phrase, take refuge in him, there is no refuge from him. We'll look at more at that later. So the, the response of the psalmist to this question, what can the righteous do? He says, the Lord is in his holy temple. The temple was where God's presence was among his people, with his people. It's where um, people went to have their sins forgiven. It's where they went to be close to God. People came to God through the priests. And today, 
we come to God through our great high priest, Jesus Christ. And today, the church is like a temple, as it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. Um, and so even today, when the foundations are under attack, the Lord is with us. The Lord is, he knows our pain, he knows our fears. If you think of, um, if you think of Acts chapter 9, God says to Saul, why are you persecuting me? God is in heaven. It was the Christians who were being persecuted. God says, why are you persecuting me? God feels the pain of his people. And I want to say that the church is a good place to talk about the things that bother us. If, if we have um, doubts and questions and all these arguments from atheists are assaulting our heads or whatever, if we keep silent, it'll probably burn a hole in your brain. <laughs> and um, that's when people start to walk away from the Lord sometimes. If you have deep questions, it's a good time and place to talk about them to people in church who can help us stay close to God and take refuge in him. The Lord is not only in his temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. Now, back in those days, they thought that the gods only had a rule over a tiny little area. This hilltop belongs to this god. That hilltop belongs to that god. You go to this little god's area, you have to do something for that god. And um, the, the advisor to the psalmist says, quick, run to the, the mountain stronghold, as if that's the place where we'll find refuge, only place where we'll find refuge in God. But the psalmist's answer is, the Lord is enthroned in heaven. He's over all. He's enthroned over the whole earth. And so he's not only here among us, with us, he is also above us, up there. He sees everyone. He sees everything. Nothing escapes his notice. This is what Psalm 11 is saying. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. He is king over all. And the Lord is judge. And this is a key reason in the psalm for taking refuge in God, for taking confident refuge in God. Because he judges everyone and he absolutely hates evil. And we can see this um, in, I'll just read from verses 4 to 7 so you can see the bigger picture. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyelids see. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked, and his soul hates the one who is wicked, the one who loves violence, sorry. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. So um, according to this psalm, God sees everything and he will judge the wicked like Sodom and Gomorrah with fire and brimstone. Um, he'll judge them completely, in other words. And the righteous are judged too. The righteous are examined too. The righteous are judged upright. They will see God's face. And we'll have a look at later at what that means. 
So Psalm 11 presents this as a reason for taking refuge in God. But because um, we're living in this day and age, um, sometimes we're a little bit embarrassed by God's holiness and we talk so much about his love, perhaps it might be a little bit hard for, for us to understand this concept. Certainly in the church at large, from, from what I've been reading, there's a lot of this um, talk about God's love and not so much talk about his holiness. And this psalm um, does present, um, I'll go back one slide please, does present um, an, uh, a problem for us because we say that God loves the world and yet the psalm says God hates the wicked. How does this work out? Well, the world is talked about in, in different um, senses in the Bible and we have two verses up there. If anyone loves the world, the love of God the Father is not in him. First John chapter 2, verse 15. And then we have John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. Interestingly, in John 3.16, that word so is very important. It doesn't mean so much. It's not a mention of amount. It's a mention of method. Like the sort of old English thing, like if I was teaching you how to do up a button, I would say, you do it up so. You do it up this way. And so the, the Greek there, hutos, means in this way, in this manner. So you could say, this is how God loved the world. God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son, so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. The way that God loves the wicked and the world is to give them the opportunity and the invitation to repent. And in Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 32, God says, I take no pleasure in the death of anyone. I'd rather that they repent and live. God doesn't enjoy punishing the wicked, but he does hate the wicked. We can think, too, that Jesus died for sinners, not just sin, because God's wrath is against sinners and not only sin. It's sinners who need forgiveness. And we can think, too, that God's judgment is excellent and awesome because God's judgment on the wicked means freedom and joy for the people who were oppressed by the wicked. And if you read Revelation chapter 18, it talks about the destruction of the evil city Babylon. In just one hour, an entire city was destroyed in a great big bloodbath by God. And in Revelation chapter 19... There's a song of worship to God because of his judgment. And they cry out, a great multitude in heaven cry out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. <laughs> Why? The smoke from the city goes up forever and ever. And, and it says that um, blood was given to her to drink as she deserved. And some, uh, Revelation chapter 19 is a huge worship song for the judgment of God on the wicked. Justice has triumphed. The, the oppressed are free. God's judgment gives us hope. Hope that one day the, that wickedness will end. Hope that one day there will be no more sin, no more crying, no more dying, no more curse, as Revelation says. And um, as... Uh, one author I was reading said, when dictators are burning people for their pleasure, that's the best time to remind them 
that there is a God in heaven who is just. If we took an evolutionary mindset, we'd have to say that suffering and death, well, that's just a a byproduct of the system. But because God is judge, because God is just, because he hates the wicked, then there is hope that righteousness will prevail. And there is absolute surety that God himself will take action at one day and make things right. It makes suffering and righteousness meaningful. And so this is why the psalmist in Psalm 11 is saying that the Lord judges the wicked is a good reason to take refuge in God when things are going wrong, to remember that he is king over all and he will judge. And so we've looked at God's judgment on the wicked. Now let's look at God's judgment of the righteous. It says, because the righteous Lord loves righteousness, the upright will see his face. And to see God's face is amazing. It's wonderful. It's to be in his presence and to know him and his favor. In the Psalms, people who are suffering cry out to God, why do you hide your face? I feel like you're not paying attention to my suffering. In the Psalms, the Lord sets his face against those who do evil. He focuses on them to judge them and to um, show them that he is Lord. And in Psalm 1611, it says literally, in front of your face there is fullness of joy. God looks on the righteous and he focuses on them. They're in his presence and they're full of joy. And um, this is the hope of the righteous who take refuge in God. In the Lord I take refuge because he's righteous the upright will see his face. And in Revelation chapter 22, verses 3 and 4, it says that the people who are in God with heaven, the, the saints, will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, in the city, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. What an amazing privilege that will be. Sorry, go back one slide, please. Um, There's just one more thing that I would like to mention um, with this, with God's judgment. When we look at God's judgment and we say, well, God judges the wicked and he rewards the righteous. It's important to remember that this is not a star chart where God gives you stickers for behavior and a reward at the end. The righteous are those who do right, but the reward is not a reward for behavior at the end. The reward is a holy community in the very presence of God himself. It's not a reward that we can get to take home. It's not a product that we can consume. It's not um, something that we can tick off. I've got that now. There's nothing less than seeing the very face of God, being in his presence, knowing him intimately, and um, really um, being in a holy community where nothing and no one is wrong. So, um, how then do we take refuge in the Lord? 
What a question. The psalm doesn't tell us much of how. It tells us that the Lord is a refuge. But we have to ask this question. How would people take refuge in the Lord? I would put it to you that the way for the righteous in Israel is to take refuge in the Lord was to continue to follow him as king no matter what. And if you think of any time in Israel's history when they started to turn away from God, when, when their foundation of belief and everything seemed to be crumbling, when they turned to idols, what was God's instruction to them? When you read the prophets, most of the time the prophets are telling the Israelites to obey God's law. And Micah chapter 6 verse 8, I'm sure you're very familiar with. Could we bring it up on Shonak, please? Micah chapter 6 verse 8 is, um, is one of those classic cases when Israel was turning away from God and worshipping idols. And what does God say to them? What's the remedy? How are they going to trust in God as a refuge? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? And we could multiply those examples many times over. Now back to the PowerPoint, please. So then what about the New Testament? Well, we know that Jesus Christ has already won the victory on the cross at, over sin and death and hell. He already has the victory. He is the risen king. At the moment, he is seated at the right hand of God, ruling, as it says in Hebrews. So how, how can the church live in the victory of God today and take refuge in him despite all of these attacks on the church? I would say is to continue to follow the Lord as king no matter what. And I'd like to give you two examples of this. The first one is in Acts chapter 4, verse 24 to 33. Uh, put that on Shannon, please. Yeah. So in this, this was one of the first instances of the church being threatened with suffering. Um, the, the apostles, two of the apostles had healed a man, or rather Jesus healed the man through the apostles, and the Jewish ruling authorities were angry, and they commanded the apostles not to preach or teach in this name, and they threatened them with persecution. And when they, when they heard that, they went back to their church and told, told the church, and what did the church do? They lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything that is in them, you are sovereign, you're over all. And then they proceed to say that people can't do anything against your perfect plans. And if you scroll down, please, to verse 34. And what they prayed for was not protection. What the church prayed for when they received this threat was not that the threat would go away or that they would be more powerful than the people who were against them. It wasn't that they would be able to meet peacefully and continue their godly lives. No, they prayed for boldness to proclaim God's word. They prayed for boldness to proclaim God's word in the face of the threat of persecution, and they, they continued to do that later on. And what was the result? 
The result was that many people came to know the Lord Jesus Christ. The result that was, was that with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Great grace was among them all, and they were just an amazing witness in their community in the face of them being attacked. Let's look at another one. Let's look at Colossians. If we look at Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, we read Paul's concern for the church. Colossians 2 verse 8, Paul says, See to it that nobody takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. And for the church in, in Colossae, there was so many new ideas and false teachings and people who were bringing all this heresy to the church and perhaps were starting to lead people astray. And what was Paul's response? How could the, the church at Colossae take refuge in God and carry on for him? Well, Paul spends like the first half of the book talking about the supremacy of Christ. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. By him, all things were created. He's the one who redeemed us. He's the one who rescued us. And in chapter 3 of Colossians, Paul says, Set your minds and hearts on things above where Christ is seated. Trust in the Lord. Take refuge in God, even in the face of the very foundations of what the church believes being attacked. This is the way I believe that God would like us to take refuge in him, to be confident that he will deal with the wicked, to be confident that he will carry, carry us and carry us through and to focus on the mission that he's given us the task of being faithful to him as our king, the task of proclaiming him as king over the whole earth so that people turn and see that he is Lord and follow him. And we can think of Jesus too. Jesus was persecuted, but he was always doing the will of his father. Because the righteous Lord loves righteousness, because he loves righteousness and he's able to judge and the upright will see his face, we can follow him as king, regardless of the attacks that come. Back to the PowerPoint, please. So I've said we can carry on making disciples of all nations as you're going along, as you're baptizing them, as you're teaching them. Why? So that they obey everything King Jesus commanded. Jesus says, all authority has been given to me. And he said, I am with you always to the very end of the age. He is with us. He is king over us. He is the Lord. Take refuge in him. There is no refuge from him. Father God, thank you that you are an awesome refuge. Help us to trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen.